Acts chapter 4 is what we're going to look at this morning, starting in verse uh, 23. Uh, In June, we uh, took a break from the book of Acts. We started uh, looking at at the Psalms over the summer. And uh, now we're going to go back and uh, see what we can do in the book of Acts and see what God has for us there. And we left off in chapter 4. And we left off uh, in verse 23. To set this up and to remind ourselves of what's going on in this context... Uh, the disciples, uh, particularly Peter and John, were going to church or going to temple. And there was a lame man there, uh, sitting there asking for, for help. And, and they stop, and Peter looks at him in the eyes, and he heals him in the name of Christ. And he gets up, life is completely different. And Peter, being the apostle that he is, takes this opportunity to talk about the gospel. He begins to preach and share with others uh, what is going on here, and, and who actually did this, and why it's significant, and why it's important. Well, word spreads, and uh, the powers that be, the religious leaders, don't like this at all, and they bring them uh, to their council to meet and talk with these uh, disciples or these apostles. And basically, the gist of that meeting is, after they deliberate back and forth and have probably a pretty spirited conversation, uh, they tell the apostles, no more evangelism. Uh, You can't talk about Jesus anymore. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to see this or else. Okay? And so the disciples are leaving this meeting, and verse 23 is where we find uh, their response to all these things. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word as you're able? Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23, we'll read through 37. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider these threats and enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of the possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work in them, all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought their money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it never fades away. Would you pray with me? Father God, would you pray and ask that the reality of of these words, the reality of what the disciples are experiencing and doing and how they're responding to it all, that it would have import into our own lives and our own circumstances Here in Manning, South Carolina, we ask in your son's holy and precious name, amen. Would you please be seated? 
When we were living in uh, Savannah, Georgia, there was a fellow that came to the door and he knocked one kind of mid-morning. And he said, uh, would you like to have your water tested? And he says, if you want to have your water tested, we'll give you a gift card. And there was a voice inside of me saying, do not do this. This is a trick and you will regret it. But I was enticed by the gift card. And so I said, okay. So the date was set and the fellow came over. And I brought all this equipment. It was early evening, close to dinner time. And he tests our water. And of course, we have dirty water. I was like, wow, this is shocking. We really have dirty water. I can't believe that you, the water tester who wants to sell me something, is telling me my water is insufficient. And so he tells me all the, the, the greatness that would come into my life if we had this water purifier system hooked up to the outside of our home. and would just feed into our, our pipes there. And our lives will be completely different. Our teeth will be cleaner. Our carpets will be cleaner. Our dishes will be better. Uh, we'll have greater, better children. We may have more children. And uh, they'll all earn scholarships uh, to the universities of their choice. And he's telling me all this stuff, all the benefits. And I'm responding with, no, we can't do it. No, we can't do that for this or that reason. And, um, and he had a comeback for every negative thing I said. It was something positive. They said, no, this will be the greatest thing. And so as the, evening, as the evening wore on, and I kid you not, evening, not appointment, but as the evening wore on, my body language is saying, no, I'm not interested. It's time to move on. Our kids screaming and hollering, uh, younger than they were, were saying it's time to move on because we want to eat and get on with our lives. We're not going to buy this. And it soon became very apparent that the reasonable thing for this fellow to do would be to leave and say, this is not going to work. Please give me my gift card so we can both go on with life and agree to disagree over this. My point is sometimes we encounter circumstances where we understand and we see the reasonable thing to do, but we don't do it. We don't respond like we should for various reasons or from various desires. The disciples are in a situation where they understand the reasonable thing to do is to pray. And I tell you, the reasonable thing to do is to pray for this reason. If the Bible really, Bible really is true, Jesus really did enter into our time and space. He died on a real Roman cross. And he was resurrected. And he says to us today, you can have life. You can have eternal life because I died in your place because of your sin, because of your guilt, because of your shame. And God really does love you. And God really does like us. And God really does answer prayer because he loves to answer prayer, then the reasonable thing to do is to pray. It's to go to him, to cry out to him, move towards him. Change may not happen overnight, but as we move in the direction of him, as we pray to him and trust our lives to him, he's going to change, he's going to work, he's going to respond to what's going on. And so the disciples do the reasonable thing, they pray. They go home after hearing all this drama, so to speak, and they go home and pray. Simply put, this passage teaches us a great deal about prayer. And there's three things I want us to look at as we think about it. Prayer is three things. It's connecting with God, who he is. Prayer is connecting with God in scripture. And prayer is connecting with the ultimate thing that we need. Okay, Connecting with God, connecting with scripture, and connecting us to the ultimate thing that we need. So first, prayer is connecting, to with, connecting us with who God is. Let me set this up and think that, that what is going on here is a really big deal. We read it from our perspective on history. 
We know the end of the story. We know that, yes, they encountered some difficulties, but the church really grew and exploded and it went everywhere. That's not necessarily what they were thinking and feeling at the time. Here the apostles are fresh from this encounter with the religious leaders of their day. And they're told simply, you can't share your faith anymore. You can't talk about Jesus. This is way too controversial. We don't want you doing evangelism anymore like you have been doing or else. Or else there's going to be threats. Or else something bad is going to happen to you. And if you're one of these disciples, if you're the church, actually you're hearing this response to a lame man being healed in the name of Christ. You begin to do the homework a little bit and say, well, what is the or else? What is the or else? What could they actually do to me? They could take my wealth. They could take my stuff from me. They could take my freedom. They could throw me in jail. They could take my business. They could take my loved ones and put them in jail. They could take me and put me in jail, ultimately kill me, but they could torture me before I actually die. And so here are the disciples with all these or else's upon their backs and in their minds thinking about what is at stake here. What are the costs here? Things could go really bad. And you can't be surprised that they're a little nervous about this. They're a little scared by this. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear coming their way because they do pray about and they do ask for boldness in light of what they are experiencing. And so the disciples go and they pray. Assuming they're all gathered together in the, in the passage that we had before us is, is one person praying for everybody else there. And they begin to pray by reminding themselves, if you will, this is who God is. Verse 24, they address him as what? As sovereign Lord. And that word simply means master of all. Uh, that there's no higher authority. He is the one in charge. Not only is he in charge, but he has a plan. Not only does he have a plan, but he has the power and the will to execute that plan. Nothing escapes him. Uh, there's a, he, he's the definition of sovereignty. Okay, He is in control of all these things. And the church is saying, Sovereign Lord, they're going to him. And you think about it like what they've come from a little bit. They've come from these earthly leaders, these earthly rulers, so to speak, who have power who can tell them to keep silent and can back it up with threats. The disciples sit down and say, you know what? We're going to meet with the real sovereign Lord. We're going to meet with the one that really is in control. And you think, that's great. Why is that important? Why is that relevant? Well, think about it like this. Think about the experience of the disciples the last couple months. They've seen history literally change in a matter of three days. They've seen their Savior the one that they followed around day in and day out, be arrested, be beaten, executed on a cross, and then resurrected. They sat down and had lunch with this resurrected Savior. They've met with him. He's taught them. He's told them about the Great Commission. All the things that Jesus told them before the cross seemingly are made clear to them now. Now they get it. Now they understand it. And then they see Jesus lifted off up into a cloud. And they're told that this Holy Spirit is going to come upon them, which they experience on the day of Pentecost, that holiday or that festival. And Peter gets up and begins to preach. And it doesn't fall on deaf ears, but thousands respond with repentance and want to be baptized and want to be a part of this congregation, want to be a part of this name of Jesus. Things are happening. Individuals in that room are sitting there thinking, God, you have revolutionized my life. You've changed me completely. All these things are going on, 
And now they're facing what? They're facing persecution. They're facing extreme pushback for their faith and their beliefs. And there's a great deal of fear and there's a great deal of uncertainty that's before them. Where is all of this going to lead? And what they do is they remind themselves, this is who God is. You are the sovereign Lord. And what they're doing is they're connecting God's attributes, God's person with their here and now. It's like they're saying in a sense, yes, we know all these authorities are coming at us. We know that things are uncertain. Uh, we know that it's, you know, if we go out and start talking about Jesus and if we keep being faithful to the message you've given us, it may get costly. It may get difficult. It may get ugly. And as true as those circumstances are, you are of greater reality to us. Yes, we have these religious leaders pushing in on us with their threats, but you are the sovereign Lord. And we want the reality of who you are to be greater in our lives than those circumstances, than those things that we experience. You see how they're dealing with their fears? Do you see how they're dealing with their uncertainty? They're saying, God, we want you to be more real to us than what we're experiencing. What's going on around us? We want you to be more real to us. The takeaway for us is, how do you respond to your bad circumstances? How do you respond to your sadness, to your loneliness, to your depression, to your fears, to your anxiety, to your conflict, uh, to the stress at work? What are you doing with those things? Where are you taking them? They may seem big to us, but are you willing to say, God, who you are, your sovereignty, for example, I want that to be a bigger reality to me than what I'm experiencing right now. How do you pray? How do you talk to him? What do you know to be true about him? That's them connecting with God. They also connect with the God in Scripture. Verse 25 and 26. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed The reason I read that passage is because they're quoting from Psalm chapter 2. We studied this back in June, I think. Okay, Looked at Psalm chapter 2 and the gist of that psalm is you had these kings, you had these rulers and authorities saying, God, we don't want you in our lives and we're pushing back against you. And here are the disciples taking that passage from the Old Testament and they're saying that's what's happening to us now. That's what happened to us in the past. The religious leaders and the political leaders coming together and saying, we don't want you ruling over us. What did that look like? It looked like arresting Christ. It looked like beating him up and putting him on a Roman cross. God, we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want you to master over us. And the disciples are taking that and they're saying, this is what's happening to us. We're seeing this play out in our midst right in front of us. Look at verse 28. It says, the rulers did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, these wicked men, you use their their bad motivations, uh, their selfish desires, and you use that for your glory. They wanted to kill Jesus, but that was your plan to have him killed and to die in our place. The takeaway for them is, what happened in Jerusalem 
was according to your plan. What's happening to us now is according to your plan. Nothing can supersede that. Nothing can move past that. You are the sovereign one. You take crooked things, broken things, evil desires, evil motives, evil people, and you use them for your good and for your glory. If you really think about this, it's really hard to imagine. In a sense, he's saying that, yes, you did something that was evil, and it was used for God's glory, but you did something evil, and you're accountable for that. And just because you're accountable for that doesn't mean it's God's fault necessarily, but God is using that for his good and for his plan to work out his will. It's hard for us to put that together, but think about it like this. There was a woman who wrote the Gideon organization, the Gideon ministry. The Gideons, if you're not familiar with them, you've probably seen their Bibles printed or placed in motel rooms. They've got a little stamp on the front cover. They just put Bibles in hotel rooms for people to read and understand. There's a gospel presentation in the back. And so this one woman saw the Bible and she just took it. She wasn't a believer, but she just she took it from the room and took it home and made it her own. And over the, the time that transpired after that, she read it. She began to digest the things that were in it. And she came to faith in Christ Jesus. She became born again. And she's writing this getting organization to say, this is what I did. I, I took this Bible or I stole it, but God used it in my life to save me. Thank you. Now, how do we put that together? Was it right for her to steal the Bible? No, it wasn't. She stole it. She took it. That's, that's not a good thing. It's not as bad as killing somebody or other things that we can do, but still it's not good. But yet God used it to bring her to faith. God used it to bring her to himself. God uses our bad decisions, our evil desires, our crooked ways, and he uses it for his good, for his glory. This was his plan. It's how he worked itself out in this person's life. And here are the disciples, this is my point, making this connection. That no matter what happens to them, God's will is going to be done. They may change their circumstances and they may go out preaching Christ and there may be no pushback. Life may be great. Or they may go and they may start talking about Christ and there could be incredible pushback and they may die because of it. But regardless, God is going to use them. Regardless, they are going to be God's instruments for his good and for his glory. The takeaway for us as we think about scripture and as we think about our prayer lives, are you taking who you are you taking yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, your circumstances, your attitudes, and are you bringing them to scripture? In other words, are you bringing worry to the scripture and, and saying, God, show me your promises regarding this? Are you taking your loneliness to scripture and saying, God, show me your promises? Show me yourself. Are you taking your insecurities? Are you taking your conflict? Are you taking your stress? The list could go on. And you bring it to scripture and you're saying, God, speak to me. Tell me what's true. And when you do that, there's real freedom. There's freedom from anxiety, from worry, from stress, from conflict, from the opinions of other people. Because you realize this is what's ultimately true. And that has a greater weight in your life than anything else around you. It's not to say that things are fatalistic and it's just, well, things will be the way things will be. That's, that's not the point. The point is that God cares for you. He loves you. 
He's using your circumstances. He's using who you are and how you're responding to things to show you more about himself. Are you willing to see? Are you willing to understand that? And all these things, these two things, uh, the disciples going to God and saying, this is who you are, and going to Scripture and saying, this is what is true, it helps us understand their prayer requests. It helps us understand what's the weightiness and the significance of that. In other words, the disciples have done their homework. This is who you are, God. This is how we've known you in the past. This is what your word says about you. And this is what your scripture says about today and what's transpiring and what's going down. And then they pray, verse 29. This is the request. This is it. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. To speak your word with great boldness. Again, we may read that and think, that's not really revolutionary. That's not really a big deal because we know the rest of the story. We know how important and significant and how explosive Christianity becomes. But think about what the disciples are asking. You've got to find it odd that all they pray for is God make us bold. That's what we want. We want to be bold to proclaim and preach Christ. They don't ask for protection and safety. Uh, they don't go off and form, you know what, we're going to form a new political organization to put back, push back because we want our freedom of speech. Okay? They don't pr- present articles to be uh, read and circulated. Uh, they don't pray, God, would you change um, these people's hearts? Would you change their lives and so they wouldn't do this? They don't ask for protection for their families. They don't ask for protection against their possessions, their houses, or any of those things. What do they pray for? They pray for boldness. What are they saying? God, we want to be faithful. And this is why it's important that they did their homework. They say, God, you are the sovereign one of history. You are true and real. You are present. At the same time, your will and your plans, they're coming to fruition. They're happening before our eyes. And all those things are more real to us than anything else. And because of that, we want to be faithful to you. I was helped when I heard these observations When the church here prays for boldness, what they're doing is they're dealing with their fears and their insecurity. And in a sense, they're dealing with the real problem. The real problem around them is not their freedom of speech. The real problem around them is not uh, the the security of their possessions, of their stuff. The real problem around them is not uh, the safety of themselves or their families. What they see as the real problem is their need to be faithful. Their need to be trusting in God, which is why they say, would you give us boldness? Even if the authorities have their ways, uh, even if they don't have their ways, even if God said to them, you know what? I'm going to change your circumstances. Okay. There's no more persecution. You're okay now. Go and, and live your life in a happy way. Even if that happened next week, next year, five years from now, there's going to be worse circumstances. There's going to be bad circumstances. That come their way. And the disciples by saying. I want to be faithful to you. They're saying. I want to know the reality of you. You are that which is most important. To me. Now maybe you're thinking. If you can still hear me. That's great for them. They pray for boldness. I'm not being persecuted by religious leaders. I'm not going to be about to be arrested. Or marginalized because I use the name. Of Jesus. And you may be thinking, that's just kind of extreme. I don't know if I can pray like that. Well, remember, they did the homework of connecting Scripture and who God is.
to themselves and to their situation. And where did that leave them? It left them thinking, this is what's most important to me. If I have a great family, if I've got a great job, if I've got a great schedule, if I've got uh, a great home, all those things are fine. But in a sense, they're empty if I don't have you in my life. If I'm not faithful to you, they're worthless to me. They're going to pass away. And the disciples are saying, what's most important is we want to be faithful. Your health may be good today, but it's going to fail later on. Your stuff may be beautiful and shiny now, but it's going to rust and corrode in the days ahead. You can't take it with you. Death comes from everybody. And the disciples are saying, that's why you're most important. And that's why we want to be faithful to you. Because you're true and you're real. You love us with an eternal, everlasting love. And we want to know that. And we want to experience that. Do you know the reality of God like that? Are you willing to know a God like that? Are you willing to trust him like that? Are you willing to believe his scriptures by faith? Are you willing to believe this is who he is by faith? Are you willing to embrace the reality of that? Let me close with this. This passage ends, in a sense, with the, the, the house shaking. There's like some kind of earthquake that happens in their midst at, when they say amen, it looks like. And you think about the other places in Scripture where, some, where there's been an earthquake. You can go to Exodus 19 and 20, where Moses, where the people of Israel gather around this mountain, and God's going to speak to them basically the Ten Commandments, and the earth shakes there. Fast forward to the Gospels. Matthew, Christ is on the cross. He dies. The, the, the veil that separates in the temple, it, it rips in two and the ground shook. Matthew also tells us that after the resurrection, or at the resurrection, the ground shook. And here we are in this passage. The, the, the place is shaking. The ground is shaking. In those two passages in Matthew, when the ground is shaking, when there's an earthquake, it's connected with God taking justice upon himself. It's connected with God losing his possessions, God losing his home, God losing his relationships. He lost the Trinity. And he comes and he separates himself and he dies for us in our place so that we can never know death. He comes to us and says, you can know rest and security. He comes to us and says, you can know the absolute sovereign Lord in your life. You can know the freedom and beauty of knowing that, yes, things may be difficult and may be hard, But you have eternity before you. And that eternity is not hopeful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's expectant thinking. It's going to happen. You are going to heaven if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because Christ experienced all these things for you. Are you willing to embrace that? Are you willing to hear that invitation to know him fully in light of everything that's going on? Are you willing to say, God, you are bigger than my circumstances? You're bigger than my relationships. You're bigger than my stress. You're bigger than my wishes. You're bigger than my disappointments. Would you give me boldness so that I can be faithful to you? Would you pray with me? Father God, we are weak people. We're distracted uh, by college football. We're extracted by the shiny stuff uh, that we see online. We're distracted by our stress distracted by our worry, by our loneliness. In the midst of it all, we pray that you would show yourself to be bigger, 
Father God, we want to be and hear the prayer and see the faith of these disciples asking for boldness because they want to be faithful to you. We're in different circumstances, but our desire and our hope is that we would be faithful to you. Would you give us more of your spirit? Would you show us more of yourself? Make us a praying people so that we can experience you and know the richness and beauty of all that you are. We ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.